0: Man, looking around tonight, you would think that tonight was the Super Bowl and not last week. Maybe some people got confused. I'm not sure. We've got quite a bit of uh, empty territory here, but we're glad that that you're here tonight. In Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, uh, the title character finds himself in trouble when he defaults on a loan to a Jewish moneylender named Shylock. Uh, The merchant, Antonio, has served as the guarantor for a loan for his friend. Shylock doesn't like Antonio at all, and with good reason, because he's been the subject of his abuse uh, repeatedly in the past. And so he agrees to give the loan, but only on the stipulation that if it isn't repaid, He can take from Antonio a pound of flesh, literally. That's where our English idiom comes from, is from this play. Well, Antonio's ships are lost at sea, meaning that he cannot repay the loan. And Shylock takes him to court to get even with him. The play is considered a comedy if you haven't read it or seen it. It probably doesn't sound like much of a comedy at this point. But it's considered to be a comedy but there are several dramatic speeches in it too. Uh, A couple of Shakespeare's most well known. And in one critical scene in particular, one of the characters in the play, uh, Portia, who's the wife of the man Antonio guaranteed the loan for. Portia's disguised herself as a lawyer defending him in court. And in this monologue, she begs Shylock, she entreats him for mercy. And I'm not going to try to affect a bad British accent here, but uh, do listen to this closely. Uh, A lot of it will sound familiar. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy... Is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoken thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give judgment against the merchant there. Shakespeare hits upon some very important and insightful concepts there in that speech. Mercy is mercy precisely because it cannot be compelled. It is not strained. And thus, mercy is greatest when it's least deserved. We all need mercy because if we all received justice, then we all would stand condemned. God's people are to be merciful we're to be merciful because he's extended mercy to us remember what was said it is an attribute to god himself and if we fail to extend mercy to others then we render ourselves incapable of receiving mercy from god Now, we're not talking primarily tonight about God's mercy. I don't know if you notice this. It's not entirely clear in your books when you're just flipping page to page on a daily basis, but if you look in the table of contents, we're actually moving into a new unit with this lesson. The first several words were all about what they call the big picture, these foundational concepts, but starting with this week's word and for the next several weeks, we're looking at Christian character. So we're talking about the mercy that we need to cultivate and the mercy that we need to show towards others. Now, of course, mercy is an attribute of God, as we said, and he describes himself as merciful. Exodus 34, verse 6, for example. And all these good qualities, these good characteristics that we need to cultivate, like the ones In our scripture that was read a few moments ago, mercy isn't listed there, but that's all those Christian graces, these Christian virtues. Many of them we are going to be talking about in these next few weeks. All of these attitudes reflect God. It's part of being made in God's image. It's part of how we try to go out into the world and to to live as his ambassadors or his image bearers here. But again, we're talking especially about the mercy we need to show. And in fact, all of the words, Hebrew and Greek words alike, all of them that are translated as mercy or other related words, all of them carry this idea with it, not merely of a feeling compassion on someone, but of demonstrating it, of showing it. Mercy is fundamentally about an action that we take, and so With that in mind, I want us to take a deep dive into one of the passages that was part of our reading this week from Matthew chapter 18. I want us to see how Jesus attempts practically to shape us in being merciful toward one another. That is, not just feeling pity, not just feeling uh, compassion towards someone else, but actually showing it towards them. So in Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. According to Philip's translation of this text, it reads, if your brother wrongs you, go and have it out with him at once, just between the two of you. The New English Bible puts it this way, if your brother commits a sin, go and take the matter up with him. Strictly between yourselves. So, what we have here is the first of three steps that Christ gives us in this formula for promoting mercy. That's the way we want to think of it tonight. And this isn't easy. It's difficult to go to someone who's wronged you, it takes courage to do that. But if you do that, there are three possible outcomes. Uh, The first, and this one isn't really mentioned in the text, but the first is that it all may be a big misunderstanding. That's happened to us before, hasn't it? We thought that we were wronged in some way, but actually there was just confusion, and if that's the case, it can be cleared up pretty quickly. There's also the possibility that if you go to someone directly like this with the right attitude and with the right spirit, they can see the error of their ways and they'll be sorry and they'll ask for forgiveness. But then there's the third possibility that they'll be stubborn and they'll persist in their wrongdoing. And so the next verse in our text reads, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This second step also has three possibilities. The first possibility is that when this person is confronted by a few mutual friends who are disinterested in the matter and they see that they agree with you, well, then maybe they'll be brought to their senses and they'll repent. They'll ask for your forgiveness. The second possibility, again, this one isn't mentioned in the text, but we know this is possible in real life. You might take along these friends with you and find out that, well, they don't exactly see things entirely your way either. You know, we all have a tendency to paint situations in black and white and make ourselves the hero, but maybe you'll find out that both parties are a little bit in the wrong and you need to make some amends too. But the third possibility is that this person will, again, dig in, continue to be stubborn. No, they haven't done anything wrong, or maybe they know they have, and they just don't care. They're not going to uh, change in any way. And so in verse 17, we come to step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as a result of this third step, there's two possibilities. For one, with the influence and the intercession of mutual friends and then of the church, finally this person might come to their senses, they might see the error of their ways, and they might admit their fault and ask for forgiveness. But the other possibility is that even this won't get them to change. They'll dig in and they'll persist in their wrong. And in that case, Jesus says, you're justified in severing all relationships. To treat someone like a Gentile and a tax collector is to treat them like they're outside of the community. They were insiders and now they're outsiders. So we note here, this formula is designed primarily to be used among Christians. When we're talking here about the church, obviously taking it to the church only as an effect on Christians. And treating them like they're Gentiles and tax collectors, we're talking about treating them as if they're non-Christians. But I want us to think about the larger principle that's at stake here in this whole big process and how this relates to mercy. Because the, the emphasis here isn't on a mechanical process. You know, first we need to do this, and well now I've gone to them, and I need to get the two or three witnesses, and now we've done that, and we need to take it to the church. The whole point of this, the spirit of this, this is an exhaustive effort to reclaim a person. It's going time after time and taking every effort to try to bring them back. And then only after all of those attempts have been exhausted, finally treating them like an outsider. The immediately preceding context, you go up to verse number 10, the parable of the lost sheep. That makes this clear. You know this parable. Jesus talks about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, and that man goes out searching for it endlessly, and he's not satisfied until he finds it. And then when he brings it back, he's more happy about that one that he found than those 99 that never went astray. And he says there in verse number 14, so it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. You see, the purpose of this activity, this whole process, it's not punitive. It's pastoral. It's not seeking retribution. It's not seeking to put someone in their place. It's to save that person. It's to promote reconciliation. You talk about mercy. This is mercy in action. This is a process that's designed every step of the way to give every opportunity to extend mercy to others. But we have in this chapter not only Christ's formula for settling differences, if we want to call it that, but more importantly, we also have indications of his merciful attitude. And there's another example in verse number 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? as many as seven times and Jesus said to him I do not say to you seven times but 77 times Peter knew the traditional Jewish view at least among the more liberal rabbis if we can call them that that is that you only needed to forgive someone three times and after that you'd write them off the more conservative ones you only had to forgive them once And so Peter's feeling especially magnanimous, and he says, well, what about if I go to seven times? He's going above and beyond, and, you know, seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. 490 times. Not that you should count those up, but the point is you forgive as long as there's a need for forgiveness. You extend mercy just as long as there's a need to extend mercy. When problems exist between brothers and sisters, we need to approach them in the right spirit. That's with a heart full of love. That's with an attitude of mercy. We have to be eager to go the second mile. We have to be eager to turn the other cheek. And that has a couple of benefits. For one thing, just practically speaking, that's more likely to get that other person to repent if they see that you're coming to them out of a spirit of, of love and mercy. But beyond that, it's actually better for us if we've been wronged in some way. Again, just practically speaking. You'll be a lot happier. You'll be a lot healthier. You'll have a lot fewer sleepless nights if we don't harbor those attitudes of hatred and bitterness and resentment. If we extend mercy to others, that keeps those negative feelings from gaining a foothold within us. And then Jesus introduces a famous parable. This is one we covered in some detail not too many weeks ago when we had our study of the parables. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned them and said to him, shouldn't we be just that generous and extending forgiveness to others? God has extended his mercy to us. And that should prompt us to be merciful to others. He's forgiven us so much. That's the point of this parable. Surely we can forgive others if just a trifling amount didn't compare us. That's a point that Jesus makes again And again, this basic principle, at the end of the model prayer, you remember this, he explains why he prays, forgive us our trespasses if we forgive those who trespass against us. And he explains, if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's from Matthew 6. From the following chapter, the beginning of Matthew 7, also of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In short, we will be judged with the same degree of severity that we use to judge others. That right there should be sufficient reason to cause us to be extremely merciful towards others because otherwise, God won't be merciful to us. We've looked at a a practical procedure tonight, and again, technically speaking, this procedure, step by step, this is designed to be used to deal with problems in the church, but what I want us to see is the larger principle that's at stake here and what it reveals to us about how we should approach all problems that we have in any relationship that we have. We should go and try to seek out others, work out a solution with them if there's some problem. Failing that, we should take a couple or three friends with us, rely on their advice, their counsel, their judgment. But what's most important of all in all of this in all our relationships with others. The goal is not vengeance. The goal is not to get even. The goal is not to give somebody their comeuppance and put them in their place. We're not trying to get our pound of flesh. The goal is reconciliation. It's peace. It's forgiveness. This whole chapter and this process is all about practically how we extend mercy to others. And that principle is something that we can employ with everyone, co-workers, bosses, friends, relatives, neighbors, you name it. This should guide every interaction that we have with others who've wronged us in some way. It's not the easy way, but it's the better way. And in a world that so often is torn apart by conflict on every level, from interpersonal conflict to international conflict, Christ has the answer and it's the way of mercy. Maybe you're here this evening and you haven't extended mercy to those who've wronged you as you ought. Or maybe you're here tonight and there's some other sin in your life and you need to throw yourself upon the mercy of the Lord. Whatever your need may be, if you need to make changes in a public way tonight, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.